This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And tonight, we're going to talk a little bit about a band that some people loved, some people hated. Everybody had an opinion. And that's what was interesting about them. And I'm talking about Nirvana. was Nirvana, taped in November 18th, 1993, at the Sony Music Studios in New York City. This is when MTV did a great service to many bands by stripping down the loud, amplified music that we all love to get down to the bone of the bone to what the demo tape may have sounded like when many of these bands first got signed. What drew label executives, Geffen Records in particular, to this band. At the same time, Geffen was courting the Counting Crows and Gary Gersh in particular, one of the great A&R guys in music history when I was living out in L.A. at the time. What a remarkable talent to see the talent in Kurt Cobain and in Adam Duritz of the Counting Crows, two very different kinds of bands. And I think that's what made Geffen Records so special. Well, these guys went into the studio with barely a drum kit and almost no amps, just stage amps. And so many people I knew who didn't like Nirvana walked away from that night of music saying, my goodness. By the way, the same with Eric Clapton. A lot of people who thought, yeah, lots of blues jams, all that electric guitar playing. Well, when they broke down that set, the same thing happened to Eric. And don't forget Tony Bennett, because Tony Bennett went on Unplugged. And it revitalized his career. And for the next 20 years, still playing to this day, I'm going to see him at the Orpheum in Memphis. He's selling out because a whole new generation of young people saw Tony, an upright bass, and a keyboard player dazzle them with Copeland songs and Irving Berlin songs. And so we're going to play a little bit more from this remarkable session, which got released in 1994 on November 1st. This performance, this raw performance from Nirvana 
and Kurt Cobain ended with, of all things, a Lead Belly song. And, well, I don't think anyone in the audience was expecting this kind of vocal performance from Kurt Cobain. I know I wasn't. Let's take a listen. Kurt Cobain, unplugged, released on this day in history. This is Our American Stories. Kurt Cobain, Nirvana Unplugged. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to capture all of our This Days in Histories, as always brought to us by the folks at Hillsdale College. Oh, and she looked at the window 
And she watched the shade go down It was a private conversation No one heard her say That man she left behind her Was two thousand miles away A singing boy pick up that fiddle this is Our American Stories, and you're listening to one of the great storytellers in music, and he has been for the past 30 years. His name is Lyle Lovett. We featured Guy Clark, and we've done something on Willie Nelson and Merle Haggard. And by the way, we've done Miles Davis, and we've done, well, we've done just about every kind of music. But there's something particular about this roots country music. It's storytelling, period. And... And this is Our American Stories, and thus, on this day in history, we're going to focus on the life of Lyle Lovett, because he was born in 1957. Singer-songwriter, actor, active since 1980, he has recorded 13 studio albums and released 25 singles to date. He's won four Grammys, including Best Male Country Vocal Performance, 1989, for his Lyle Lovett and his large band, Best Country Album. The road to Ensenada is simply perfect. Pick it up, it's eternal. That's the great thing about old classic country, like classic rock and classic music. It just never seems old. And that's a rare thing. We were eating at Gus's Chicken today, and 90s music came on, and you can just go, 1990s. It just had a sound, and it just sounds old. And it doesn't mean it's not good, but you say 90s. But you listen to Road to Ensenada, you listen to George Jones, or you listen to Miles Davis or Louis Armstrong, and I defy you to pick a decade. I just defy you, because you can't. He was born in Houston, Texas. When his family lived in the nearby community of Klein here, Lyle Levitt talks about why he still lives in Klein, Texas. Yeah, I'm very close with my family. Uh, In in our family, people didn't move off uh, and and get jobs other places. Uh, My my grandfather gave uh, my mom and my dad a couple of acres, uh, part of the old farm place, to to build their house where I grew up. And now I live in my grandparents' house, the house that my grandfather built in 1911. He's the son of William Pierce and Burnell Lovett and was raised in the Lutheran Church. Here, Lovett talks about his love for music early in his life and how his first guitar lessons were a result of a crush on his second-grade teacher. I always liked music. Uh, I got to take guitar lessons starting in the second grade. I I went to parochial school and uh, sang in the choir. Uh, I liked I liked music, but never pursued it in a serious way, and never never imagined that I'd I'd get to actually do it. My second grade teacher's husband uh, was my first guitar teacher, and and I really think that the the reason I wanted to take guitar lessons is because she was really gorgeous and uh, had the convertible car, that, <laughs> yeah. that she would, and she would take me to the lesson in, in her car. Wow, that's good enough for most young boys. Lovett goes on to describe what country music was like in Texas while he was growing up and how he was drawn to the lyrical side of the music scene back then. Country music at home in Texas uh, was dance music. Uh, uh, Dances on Saturday night would be a a country band and they'd play the songs from the radio. I found myself more interested in performers who were doing uh, their own songs. I, I, I became more interested in the uh, I, I guess more the, the lyrical uh, uh, content of songs than, than just the, the, the musical feel of the song. Here's Lovett describing how he discovered his early musical influences growing up. Growing up, uh, I listened to music uh, on the radio. As I started playing or, or, or becoming interested in, in performing, 
I would go to clubs around town and, and listen to singer-songwriters, and, and that's where I became acquainted with the music of Towns Van Zandt and Guy Clark, uh, and Eric Taylor and Nancy Griffith from, from Houston, uh, Willis Allen Ramsey, people that I could go and listen to and try to you know, figure out how they were playing what they played on the guitar. Lovett attended Texas A&M University, where he received a Bachelor of Arts degree in both German and journalism. Here he talks about his first guitar and how his parents helped pay for his college education. And while there, well, that's where his dalliance with music really took root. I played kind of all through school. Uh, my, parents, my parents put me through school, which, which gave me the opportunity to save the money that I would make uh, playing play the, the gigs that I'd get to book. And, and I, could, you know, I, I saved up and bought my first Collings guitar in 1978. Uh, bought a PVPA that, that fit nicely. It, had, it was those, those tall columns with the four 10-inch speakers in each column, and they would fit exactly between the, the door handles in the back seat of my parents' 1968 Buick Wildcat. If <laughs> I could put it all in, in there. And, and, uh, uh, so so it was, it was a, an opportunity for me to to play in school, uh, and and uh, and I was after I got out of school, uh, I was uh, you know lucky enough to just be able to, to keep playing. Uh, it, you know, n- n- nothing. I, I don't feel like anything ever happened for me in a dramatic way, or or quickly. But but uh, with every sort of small step along the way, mm-hmm. I seem to receive and just enough encouragement to 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 want to keep doing it. Indeed, and Lovett talks about how in the 1980s he needed to figure out the music business before heading to Nashville. In 1984, I, I felt like I was, I, was, I was sort of playing the same half a dozen clubs every couple of months and mm-hmm. felt like I was sort of, sort of just doing the same thing and, and, and thought to myself, well, I need to, I, I need to learn about the, really try to learn about the music business now or figure out what I'm going to really do in my life. And, and uh, so I, I went to Nashville with, uh, with four songs that I recorded with these uh, musicians I'd met from Phoenix, Arizona, mm-hmm. and, and with with the idea of pitching the songs, right. with with the idea of trying to maybe get a publishing deal, see, seeing if I could get performers interested in recording my songs. I thought that was a, a realistic uh, aspiration at, at the time, and so so that that was my idea. And I thought, well, if I could press up my own record and sell it at my shows, and it might be it might work out okay. Lyle here talks about the kind of musician he admires and how he doesn't write songs about the big picture. I admire songwriters who seem to be able to write a project, to write an album. Yeah. Uh, each of my albums really has been a, a stopping and taking inventory of the songs that I, that I have, the, the best songs I have at the moment. I, I try to always work on songs. Songs are a part of my uh, everyday life. And, and, and don't speak to a, a, a big picture idea, really. Yeah. It's, I write about things that, you know, little things that happen. They are very little things. In fact, he writes little almost vignettes and novelettes. There are many novellas almost, Lyle Lovett songs. When asked about how his songwriting changes over the years or changed, Lovett describes it as a process of refinement. It's a constant searching, I think. Uh, certainly your taste change. Certainly uh, how you, you know, in the case of a singer, how you sing changes a bit over the years. Yeah. Uh, you, you, you hope that it gets better. You hope, you hope that your taste uh, enables you to refine what you do. But it's, it's always just a shot in the dark, I think. You know, writing, songwriting, making up songs is a very insecure business and, and thinking that uh, you have something valuable to, you know, valuable enough to stand on stage and tell people, it's, it's an insecure thing. Indeed, and Lovett described the subject matter in his songwriting as essentially 
just a point of view. I've always felt that if, if, uh, if I had any reason to exist as a performer, uh, it's because of a, a combination of, of, uh, of elements that rely heavily on, on just my point of view. I don't write about anything that hasn't been written about. Yeah. Uh, the subject matter in my songs. So it's, it's more a point of view. It's, it's uh, how important is, is uh, someone's take on something. And that's sort of what I feel like I'm testing. Here, Lyle Lovett talks about writing his song, If I Had a Boat. And this was the song from Pontiac, his second record, that would put him on the map. And how it turned into a song that he never expected people would demand to hear when he played live. If I Had a Boat is yeah. a song that uh, uh, I, I made up one morning really early as I, as I woke up and, and drank a cup of coffee. Uh, and, uh, and, that, and that's a song that people request all the time. It's a song that I can't do a show without playing. There's a verse uh, uh, about uh, uh, Tonto and the, long, lo- the Lone Ranger. Yeah. Uh, I'd, been, I'd listened to a, a, a Bill Cosby album, and he has a joke about uh, the Lone Ranger and Tonto. Yeah. And, and uh, uh, you know, that, that sort of got me thinking. And so let's, as we go out to this break, play that song from Pontiac. And when we come back, we'll hear more music in the next segment from Lyle Lovett. And take a listen to this unique style of storytelling and poetry. And if I had a boat, I'd go out on the ocean. And if I had a pony, I'd ride him on my boat. And we could all together go out on the ocean. Send me up on my pony on my boat. Now if I were Rod Rogers, I'd sure enough be single. I couldn't bring myself to marry an old dame. Would it just be me and Trevor? We'd go riding through them movies And we'd buy a boat and on the sea we'd sail And if I had a boat I'd go out on the ocean And if I had a pony I'd ride him on my boat And we could all together Go out on the ocean Set me up on my pony on my boat now the mystery masked man was smart He got himself a Tonto Cause Tonto did the dirty work for free But Tonto, he was smart She hates my mama She hates my daddy too She loves to tell me She hates the things I do She loves to lie beside me almost Every night Well she's no lady She's my wife The preacher asked her And she said I do The preacher asked me And she said yes He does too The preacher said I pronounce you 99 to life Son she's no lady She's your wife this is Lee Habib, and you're listening to Lyle Lovett, and this is from Pontiac. Nobody had really heard a country record like this before. Let's tune back in to more of this great song. How I ever thought that I just couldn't live without a woman's charm. And even though she loves the smell of French perfume, and even though she walks around in high heels 
shoes work. All I know is I'm the one who pays her price. Man, she's no lady, she's my way. And that's what Lyle Lovett came to be known as. Incredibly sophisticated storytelling. You'd go to a show at the Wiltern Theater in Los Angeles or any of the great 3,000 seaters. People would put on a suit and tie. They'd take their lady out, and it would be some of the most sophisticated storytelling. There'd be country pickers. There'd be sax players. And Lyle Lovett could just play about anything. And I'd never heard him. Someone dragged me to the Wiltern to see him, and that was it. I was done. And you understood every word. You just followed the stories. You met these characters. And in that particular one, uh, that just sounds like, well, my bride-to-be. And so I particularly like that song for anybody who's married to a really strong woman. And hopefully you're lucky enough to be married to a really strong lady. Uh, That's your song. And let's cover some of his other songs on that record because Pontiac was the breakout record for him. And another song, L.A. County. She left Dallas for California with an old friend at her side. Well, it did not say much, but one year later he'd ask her to be his wife. And the lights of LA County, they look like diamonds in the sky. When you're driving through the hours, Well, it did not say much, but it was a beauty of a cold black 45. And the lights of L.A. County, they look like diamonds in the sky. When you're driving through the hours with an old friend at your side. So I drove on all the day. As I drove into the valley with my old friend at my side And as she stood there at the altar all dressed in her gown of white Lord, her face was bright as the stars are shining like I dreamed of all my life and they kissed each other And they turned around And they saw me standing in the aisle Well, I did not say much I just stood there watching Except 45 told them goodbye And the lights of L.A. County Look like diamonds in the sky
And you don't know where to stop the song because he just writes perfect, beautiful songs about longing and love. And sometimes, well, on the road to Ensenada, which I consider a perfect country record, the stillness in his songs is just, well, when you see him live, it's remarkable. And take a listen to this one called Promises. Promises given and promises broken Words stain my lips just like blood on my hand And words are like poison that sinks down inside you And some things you do you just don't understand Well I offer no reason And I ask for no pity I make no excuse for the way that I am And words are like poison That sinks down inside you And some things you do You just don't understand If God is my witness Then God is my Savior If you are my judge Then I'm already dead And words are like poison That sinks down inside you And some things you do You just don't And what if my fingers To cut off and give you Could gain my redemption I'd cut off my hands But words are like poison That bends you and blinds you And some things you do just don't understand So this is my story And I hope that it finds you For your sweet attention I cannot demand And words are like poison And live And some things you do You just don't understand The confessional nature of his music The intimacy Well, you can feel yourself getting drawn in It's so stark And contrast that with what we're about to go out with Which is just witty, smart, sophisticated Urbane lyricism on this day in history Lyle Lovett was born don't touch my hat man you better let go you can't hold on to what belongs to me and don't belong to you I caught you looking So, mister, you don't have to act so surprised. 
think if it's her you want I don't care about that Well you can have my girl but don't touch my our American stories, and we love telling stories about the sheer generosity and insanity of ordinary Americans doing extraordinary things for great and worthy causes. And there's no fanfare more often than not. Americans just do wild things for just general principles sometimes, and sometimes not even for that, just on a dare. And, well, we've been checking in periodically with Ed Anderson, a Wendy's franchisee, riding his bicycle from Virginia to California to raise money and awareness for the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption. And by the way, we love talking about adoption. In fact, we just did a bunch of adoption stories, and we're going to do so many more. We do them every month for National Adoption Month as well. There are 130,000 children in foster care in the United States and Canada waiting for adoptive homes. The foundation focuses on finding permanent, loving homes for the most vulnerable children who are considered unadoptable by the system because they have siblings, special needs, or are just, quote, too old. Today, Ed joins us after completing his cross-country adventure, biking more than 3,800 miles. Ed, how are you feeling? Well, you know, I feel remarkably good. I wouldn't say that I've got a spring in my legs, but uh, I feel good. Well, Ed, I saw a picture of your leg, and I'm telling you, that looked like you had, like, thrombosis or gout. I mean, that was scary looking what happened to your leg. Talk about, you know, how you had to rush yourself to the hospital for that one. It swelled up something awful. Yes, it did. It swelled up and was definitely black and blue. And I rode for a couple days uh, against my wife's wishes. And eventually, though, I had to go, and they were concerned that I had a blood clot, vein damage, and... um, that I might have damaged my liver or my kidneys. So I had to have an ultrasound, a vein Doppler, and then some other tests to make sure that the uh, blood in, uh, you know, with my kidneys and liver was fine. So it was a scary 24, 36 hours there. But everything panned out, everything was okay, and then back on the bike, right? Yep, uh, nothing major. Uh, I asked the doctor, okay, since it's nothing major, can I bike? And he kind of looked at me like I was a little crazy, and uh, he said, well... It's going to be painful, and you probably won't lose the swelling till you stop biking and, and all. But, yeah, I guess you can bicycle. But, you know, if you he gave me a couple things. If these happen, go to the hospital immediately. Thankfully, none of those happened, and I was back on the bike the next day. Oh, that's great, because nothing was going to deter you from finishing this unless it was life-threatening, I would, I would guess. You had five spills, one major crash, 12 flat tires, 17 dogs to outrun, four wild dogs, six rattlesnakes, and eight roads to nowhere. Which of these was the worst for you, Ed? Do you have a a, a top worst episode? Well, I I would say it would be split between two things. In that fraction of a moment when those wild dogs showed up out of nowhere, I actually thought that they were wolves at first, and then it was like, oh, they're dogs, but then they were wild dogs, and they were running in a pack. And 
That was a bit scary, but at the end of the day, I'm not so sure who was more scared, them or me. <laughs> and what <laughs> happened? What Did you just outrun them, Ed? No, no, I didn't figure outrunning four dogs in a pack. Plus, there was one other one that was kind of in the, uh, the brush there hanging out. So I actually stopped my bicycle. <laughs> <laughs> and so we're almost re- reclaiming that moment. Uh, and, and what did you do? Have a standoff with them, Ed? Yeah, well, I stopped. They kind of looked at me. I looked at them, and I was still, you know, probably about 25 yards away. And they kind of looked, and then they kind of mingled on. And uh, they didn't go away, but they went far enough where then I just got on the bike, and adrenaline took care of the rest. I believe I uh, went from zero to whatever as quick as possible. Oh, man, I'm sure. And you had one ground of food poisoning, too, and took six days to overcome that. But you rode yes. with the food poisoning, Ed. How did you manage that one? That one was not easy. Um, same thing. I got the food poisoning, but I know I, I knew I had dates and places I had to be for events. And um, so I was uh, doing 85 to 95 miles a day on applesauce, saltines, jello, and ginger ale. And um, you're going to negative calorie spend there. I ended up losing about 15 pounds during that. And it was difficult. But again, I just thought about the fact of I got to finish this. There are a lot of kids out there that have something a lot worse than I do. And, you know, it, it just pulled me through it. Now I don't know how. Yeah. Well, you know, I think we do know how though. And, and let's talk to the how, because we got to talk about the why and that'll explain the how I think, Ed, you started this trip with some very clear motivations in mind and remind us, why did you do this? What were your goals? And I think there were three walk us through the, the three main goals of yours. Oh, absolutely. My, my three main goals, first of all, as we know, Dave Thomas, our founder, was adopted. And so adoption is very near and dear to all of us at Wendy's, and, and we embrace that. So I had three goals when I decided to do this. One was to raise a million dollars. The second one was to raise awareness for adoption and foster care. And the third one was to possibly compel some people to consider adopting. And I'm proud to say that on two of the three I believe we far exceeded them. We ended up right now, and there's still some contributions coming in, over $325,000 raised. Um, the awareness piece, thanks to uh, shows like yours and, and TV stations and radio and, and the Internet, far exceeded the awareness piece. And then what's really special is I know of at least three couples that after meeting and seeing me, and, and talking about what I was doing and why that said, you know, we had kind of thought about it, but we're going to adopt. So I know there are at least three children out there that someday will end up with a lucky mom and dad in a forever home. You know, Ed, that's about enough reason of all of them to do it, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, it, was, it was important to me. And um, when the times got tough, when I was tired and you know, hurt with my leg or with the food poisoning. That was what kept me going is the fact of there are people out there that have it a lot tougher than me, and I can most certainly make it through here. And what were your favorite, you know, we went through some of the harrowing parts, but in every time I've driven cross country, and I've done it a bunch of times, and four or five times blue, blue highways. I mean, no major interstates. Just stopping off in the middle of town, very often with a buddy challenging each of us to see who can get put up by random strangers at their houses. And it, without fail, it happens. People just say, hey, you need a place to crash. It's unbelievable how, how beautiful and generous the American people are. Talk about, you know, one or two of the stories that really most touched you. Well, I, 
I agree with you 100%. I think that, in general, uh, people are desensitized to how good the people in this country are. You know, they, all they hear, the news, you know, talks about the bad things. And, and i got to tell you, you know, there, there's wonderful people. I'll tell you that we were on the side of the road in the middle of nowhere in Kansas, and I was on the side of the road. My wife had brought me lunch, and we were eating it. And this farmer drove by in a truck, just whizzed by. And then my wife says, they're turning around. He pulls up, and he says, can I help you? And we, we explained that, no, you know, we're fine and what I was doing. And, you know, he just thought it was great. And we talked about, you know, how he was out here with his farm and all this. And before he left, he pulled out his wallet and pulled out a $20 bill and goes, here, this is for the kids. And I had numerous examples of people doing that. And then another uh, great example is um, we were with uh, an, at an event, and these parents came up with a child, and they were just thrilled to death, and they said, in the next couple months, he's going to be ours. We're going to be his mom and dad. And, you know, he was swinging between the two of them in their hands. And, you know, things like that, it was like, oh, my goodness. You know, that's special. So, again, I would say to the people out there, there, there are a tremendous amount of good people all across the country, and we need to be thankful for that and, and not be desensitized by what we hear otherwise. You bet. And, and how can people help? Ed, give us a, a, a call to action for our audience. What can they do to, to contribute now that this is done? I mean, they, you, you'll still accept donations, I assume. Oh, absolutely. And, and as a matter of fact, I've, I've continued to get some in, and I'm very thankful for it because it continues to help us. But you can go to my Facebook page, you know, which is uh, Ed's Bicycle Tour. You can look that up, and it will come up. And on there directly, you're going to see a direct link to where you can donate, and it'll go directly to the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption under my name. And would greatly appreciate anybody that chooses to help or just to pass my page along to increase the awareness. You bet. That's Ed's Bicycle Tour. You go on Facebook, easy to search if you're a user Again, just look for Ed's Bicycle Tour. You'll get right there and very easy to give. And I'm going to certainly do that tonight, Ed, and, uh, and give and hopefully encourage anyone who's listening to do the same. And now, you're no, you don't sound like the kind of guy who is going to just go off and retire, Ed. You and your wife, Judy. And boy, this has been something for Judy because she's had to follow you on this tour and watch you almost kill yourself probably a half dozen times. Uh, what's up next for you? This can't be your last adventure. I, something tells me it's your first of many. <laughs> you know me well. Um, for for next year, I will tell you, we have very many exciting things from a personal level. Two of our sons uh, have gotten engaged and are going to be married next year, so we're very excited about that. Uh, but I, I, if somebody had asked me at the beginning of this, and, and some people did, oh, is this going to be a yearly event? It was unequivocally, no. I can't say that now. Uh, so... I am, I am thinking about what can I do, again, to help with kids and just to help them find a forever mom and dad and a forever home. I'm not quite sure what that will be. It most likely will, will also include a bicycle. Um, but I'm not sure what it will be, but it will be announced when the time comes. Well, you let us know, Ed, and maybe I'll join you on at least one state, uh, maybe getting through one state on the bicycle. I think that's about all I can handle. Then I need a team of paramedics. But thanks for all you do, and thanks for what you did, Ed. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. The Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption, by the way, folks, is just a remarkable, remarkable organization. 
And it just shows you what private enterprise, what freedom looks like, and what American generosity and the American character looks like. Ed Anderson, his national adoption bicycle tour. Crazy dogs, snakes, bicycle spills, all for the kids. This is Our American Stories. stories and we hear a lot about drugs in the news but what we never hear about is how these drugs get made the blood the sweat the tears that go into them all the scientists all the dollars all the tests and more tests and all that goes in to the making of these drugs before they ever get into the bloodstream of patients but now we bring you one story the true story of one doctor turned entrepreneur. We discovered this story on the pages of the Wall Street Journal and his incredible fight to get a life-saving drug into the hands of patients. Cancer is the second biggest killer of Americans. And you often can't see it coming. Sometimes you don't even notice as it eats away at your body. The best you can do is hope that your doctor identifies it early. And if you don't detect the cancer early enough, it might spread from just a few cells on one organ to the whole organ, or to lymph nodes, or even other organs. Bladder cancer is no different, and the number of Americans it attacks is staggering. About 75,000 new cases of bladder cancer occur every year and over half a million people are walking around um, with bladder cancer. The cancer first attacks just the outer layer of your bladder. It's called superficial bladder cancer. Okay, the, the average age of someone diagnosed with bladder cancer is 73. Okay? Most cases of bladder cancer are superficial. And if you can cure them, they won't progress to advanced disease and kill the patient, right? So there are 16,000 deaths from bladder cancer in the U.S. So the trick is, if you can catch them early, if most of those 75,000 per year, most of those cases are, are early stage, if you can catch them early and treat them effectively, you're going to cut down on that death rate. Luckily, there's a drug to treat superficial bladder cancer before it progresses to invasive bladder cancer. And it's remarkably effective. Even so, for two out of 10 patients, the drug will fail and they will still have cancer. And if you are one of those two, your only option used to be a cystectomy. If it progresses to invasive, you need to take out the patient's bladder. And living without a bladder is no duck walk. Taking someone's bladder out is a horrible thing. You know, they have to self-catheterize. Sometimes they try to, the doctors try to give what's called a neobladder. They make a, a small pouch of bladder from a piece of your bowel. And it's, it's, you know, you're prone to infections. You're, it's so, it's so, it's horrible. It's horrible for patients. And even at that, the patient will ultimately die of the bladder cancer. Um, but you, you, you know, it's very hard to get everything. But what if cutting out your bladder wasn't the only thing a doctor could do? What if there was a miracle drug? 
one that could prevent you from living with a catheter for the rest of your life. And it would save your life. Wouldn't you want to try a drug like that? Well, that drug exists. It's called Valstar, and bladder cancer patients have been hearing its name for over a decade now. But Valstar almost never made it into the hands of patients at all. And it wasn't because it was too expensive. This is the story of one small pharmaceutical company and their fight to save the lives of bladder cancer patients. Their story is so incredible that you have to hear it from the horse's mouth. The voice you've been listening to is Dr. Joseph Golfo, who is the chief operating officer of the company that created Valstar, Anthra Pharmaceuticals. And we start his story and how he came to Anthra. The VCs, the venture capitalists, the big money guys who had backed Anthra knew that they had a great drug, but they were having problems getting that drug to the market. So Anthra was a company that was founded by the uh, Mervyn Israel. Mervyn was at uh, Harvard. And uh, when I showed up, it was basically a restart. The, um, the VCs um, did not like the way things were progressing. They really didn't have anyone in the company who um, had my kind of background. So they basically, they, I think they had up to 16 employees and they just restarted the company. Dr. Gofo already had a job he loved, but Anthra offered him his dream job. How do you turn down um, to go and be the number two guy at a venture-backed company? Um, you know, when, when here I wanted to, I was getting an MBA, and that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to run these little biotech companies. Yet all too soon, Dr. Golfo learned the difficulties of running a small business. As it turns out, it's not as easy as it looks on TV. I now know why Jesus picked 12 apostles. When you have a little company, uh, just by force of will and your presence, walking around the halls, you can touch everyone enough, they can get a piece of you, they can understand, you know, know that you're honest and, and trustworthy and follow your lead. You know what happened? Then we hired the 13th employee and all hell broke loose. There's a magic number, <laughs> I'm saying it's 12 to 13, where one person just can't manage the group anymore. And it was, you know, I would do a lot of traveling. I'd go visit the clinical sites. I'd go visit various experts as we were moving this along, raising money, doing all this stuff. And when we only had 12 people, by the time I got back, whatever petty problems there were, people could just keep it under their hat and then come talk to me about it, and then I could solve the problem. But I will tell you, on the hire of the 13th employee, all hell broke loose. Unlike Jesus, though, Dr. Golfo could hire an HR manager to take on the extra help. And soon they ended up expanding to nearly 30 employees. And Dr. Golfo would need all of those colleagues for the trial that was to come, because it would be one of the most defining trials of his life. And it would all be to save the lives of patients he didn't even know. Dr. Golfo's challenges didn't stop at just putting together a great team of great scientists and marketers, you're going to hear about one of the hardest challenges of Dr. Golfo's career, and it nearly killed Valstar before it was ever able to help its first patient. That story, the rest of the story, after this break, this is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we're back with the incredible true story of one doctor, his drug, and his quest to save lives. We just heard Dr. Joseph Golfo talk about how incredibly deadly bladder cancer can be and how his drug, Valstar, can save lives like no other drug can. Now listen as Dr. Golfo tells you not just how hard it is to make a drug, but how hard it is to get that drug approved by regulators. Because it's that challenge that determines not only his career, but those of his 30 employees and the lives of thousands of patients. Valstar's story, like every drug story, starts when a scientist, in this case Dr. Mervyn Israel, gives birth to a eureka moment. A birth that's the beginning of a very long life. Well, you know, once you decide, okay, let's let's move them further, you have a lot of preclinical work to do, right? So first, you have to get them manufactured. Not easy. They have to be manufactured according to good, good manufacturing practices, which is expensive. Next, you have to do um, toxicology studies, right? So you have to do um, various uh, animals, mice, rats. Sometimes you have to do higher order animals, like with bladder cancer and the bladder. You have to do dog studies because dogs have a, have, a, have a bladder much like humans in sensitivity. You then have to um, do all the uh, cancer testing, you know, it makes sense, susceptibility testing. If Valsar were a child, at the end of all that testing, he would be about to start kindergarten. <laughs> <laughs> Quiet. And he would still just be getting going. Thanks for the tip. Before the drug gets into the hands of doctors and the bodies of patients, it has to go through the Food and Drug Administration, better known as the FDA, the government agency that assesses the drug's safety and effectiveness, based on clinical trials, which can take anywhere from one year to eight, with an average of four or five. And those trials have to prove safety and effectiveness through what's called a claim which means that the drug achieves the results it claims to. Determining what that claim will be and what those clinical trials will measure and how it will measure them and who will measure them and how the measurements will be measured all starts with a relationship with the FDA. The FDA and the company have a meeting, and if they can agree on the claim and the trials, the company should be set up for a smooth approval process. We had a fantastic relationship with the FDA. We were doing everything they asked us to do. We had a letter agreement. A letter agreement is when you meet with the agency and you exchange meeting minutes, our version of what happened at the meeting, the FDA's version of what happened at the meeting, and you work out any differences, and then the FDA would write you a letter saying, okay, based on our meetings, well, it is our understanding this is what you're doing, and and the agreement is, okay, if you you have a complete response rate of 20% or greater, that would serve the basis of approval. So we went and did um, about a hundred patient trial. Like there were 93 patients to, at the end of the trial, and we proved that we had a, I think it was a 22% complete response rate. Think about that for a minute. A complete response is the cancer going away completely. That's pretty incredible for a drug. Testing that took years, four years actually. And Valsar would now be eight years old. And like any eight-year-old who can't support himself, someone has to nurture that child into the future. And that job fell to Dr. Golfo. At the end of all that nurturing, you present that child to the FDA's panel meeting for approval. Most, however, won't even make it there. 
Only one out of every 10 drugs will. Only one out of 10 will even be considered for approval. Doesn't that sound like a great industry to be in? But it's their dreams that drive them on. Dreams of driving health to new heights. All those years and all those millions come down to just one day before the FDA panelists, who didn't know it as a baby like Dr. Golfo did, will decide whether or not Valsar will be allowed to go out into the world. And so in preparation of the FDA panel meeting, Dr. Golfo tried to look at Valsar through their eyes. And he found inspiration in an old show. I put myself, like, remember there was a show called The Pretender. Um, I'm trying to pretend I'm a statistician, and I'm going through the data the way I, I, I believe statisticians will. Next, I'm going to go through the data the way a medical oncologist will. Next, I'm going to go, and, and so this is what I did to myself. I put, basically put myself in, in the position of that person. And, you know, even the way they breathe and eat, you know what I'm saying? Like, I just, I just immersed myself in those characters as I was going through the data the way they would. And, uh, and so I, I basically went through the data through, in five different ways. Dr. Golfo also studied the panel members, like lives depended on it. Because they did. I went to the prior six advisory committee meetings, and I watched them. I didn't just watch them. I studied them. I watched for all the nuance, all the way people's response, the way I was trying to predict body movements, like, you know, what, what this panel member, uh, what their body language says about the way they vote, about just, just, just studying FDA people. I just, I just studied it, just studied it. And so much so that the last one, now I'm getting nervous because, you know, ours is, ours is uh, coming close. The last one I went to, I got so close to the front of the room, you know, there's like a big U-shaped table. My right thigh was, was pushing on the corner of the table that so much so that I was irritating two panel members who kept giving me dirty looks because I was in their psychic spaces. It's like a, being on an airplane, right? I didn't give a damn. Something that's easier to say when you're in the audience, harder to say when you're the presenter before that panel, as Dr. Golfo universally noticed. Every company, doesn't matter who they are, Merck, BMS, doesn't matter, little companies, big companies, the people who present are afraid. And they get up there and they show their fear. They grab those, they grab that podium as if it's a shield. They could be afraid for many reasons. Maybe it's the fear of public speaking. But most of all, it might be the fear that the truth may not set them free. That despite all the compelling data in the world that's behind them, Despite Anthra meeting all the FDA's conditions for approval, he might still lose. Back in Valsar's time, 1998, the chance for approval just at that meeting was only 74%. Overall, only one of every 10,000 drug compounds that scientists create and test will go to market. One out of every 10,000. You have to care a whole heck of a lot to put up with those odds. But back to Dr. Golfo, no matter what, he was determined to show the FDA that he wasn't afraid of them. I am not going to use the podium. I'm going to stand in the middle of that U-shaped table. I'm going to look each one of them in the eye. I'm going to non-verbally communicate with them. You can't touch this. You know, I'm going to be MC Hammer, okay? There's just no way they can know this better than I, and I'm going to, I'm going to blow them away, okay? You can't touch this. 
can't touch this. Although his team had something else to say about his podium idea. Can't touch this. So my team said to me, Joseph, we love everything you're saying except one thing. Please use the podium. I said, all right, I'll use the damn podium, but I'm not going to be intimidated. The panel meeting he's here for is set up just like a criminal trial. Well, almost. You have to understand, panel meetings are theater. They are criminal trials is what they are. What you have is you have a huge room. It's typically 500 people watching. You have the prosecution, which is the FDA. You have the judge, which is the FDA. Okay, so the FDA decides on procedure. They decide what's valid and not valid, and they are the prosecution. You have the jury, which is the advisory committee panel members, and you have the defendants, which is, <laughs> which, you know, which is the drug company. Just like any real trial, the defendant is judged by a jury of his peers. The defendant's peers in Valsar's case are urologists who treat the bladder. Those urologists can also be called to the stand as witnesses. Or at least, they're supposed to be able to. Though I asked them not to, the FDA scheduled the advisory committee during the American Urologic Association meeting. What's the problem with that? Well, the problem with that is no urologist worth his or her salt, meaning anyone who publishes, okay, <laughs> is not going to be at the American Urologic Association meeting. That means that the FDA can't get urologic consultants, and I can't get urologic consultants to come to my meeting. And when we come back from the break, you'll hear just what happened to Dr. Golfo and his team, and what that meant not only for his company and for pharmaceuticals, but also thousands of patients in need around the country. When we read this story in the Wall Street Journal, it read like a thriller. And my goodness, the stakes are high. And he's going before that panel, those judges, that jury. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, the story of a drug, a drug company, and the battle to get that drug to market. our American stories and we're back with the amazing and true story of the bladder cancer drug Valstar and its life from inception in the laboratory to when it finally gets into the doctor's office or at least we hope that's how this story will end. In Washington regulators put drugs on trial in order to determine whether they get out into the world or not and as you are about to hear this trial is made for TV but isn't like one you've ever seen or heard before. The FDA was judging a disease that affects 70,000 people per year, but it ensured that no urologist would be able to make it for the trial. In a real trial, the defense would object and make sure that the witnesses could come. But this isn't a real trial. It's the FDA. So what can he do? 
What would Merck do in that situation? What they would do is they would pull their NDA. They would retract it. And they would, you know, talk to the analysts and say, well, heavens, we're not going to we're not going to put our drug for X, Y or Z before a panel where no one treats it. What would happen to their stock price? Nothing, <laughs> because they have 80 products on the market and four others coming up for review. You know, they know how to play the game. How about a little company running out of money? What are you going to say to investors who want to believe the story? Why did you pull your NDA? Oh, they're going to believe me, my version? Of course they're not going to believe me. So we had to go through with this. What if Dr. Golfo pulled his NDA, his new drug application? If little companies like Anthra started giving up on their drugs and pulling their applications for them, it would mean that more than half of all new drugs approved each year wouldn't exist. They just wouldn't exist. June 1st, 1998. It's now the morning of the trial. The day-long event will start in just hours. And Dr. Golfo has a horrible feeling. And I remember waking up that morning and just doing my final prep. And I started shaking. I mean, literally shaking. Because I saw on the laptop the two icons. The IPO Roadshow icon and the Advisory Committee uh, Slides icon. And it just hit me in that moment, right before I'm about to go up for the biggest thing in my life, how crazy this was. This is nuts. Being about to run out of money unless this is successful is crazy. And then I learned, no, that's biotech. Okay, that's biotech. And that wasn't the only thing weighing on his mind. It was interesting, there were personal things going on too because my parents were not very happy with me because I wasn't seeing patients. I, I'm an MD, right? Trained, they paid for it. Um, and what did I do with this MD? I'm a paper pusher now. <laughs> I'm a finance guy now. I'm not really helping people. You help more people, by the way, in industry than you do seeing patients. You get drugs approved to treat billions of people, but nevertheless, they didn't want to hear that. So what I did was, you know, they weren't too pleased with me over the years. I called them up and I said, you want to see what I'm doing with my MD degree? You want to see? Why don't you come down to DC and watch your son go up against 12 of the smartest people in the country? You know, I kind of put it in their faces. And with that, they walked into the FDA's courtroom with all the bankers and financiers, employees and staffers, doctors and scientists, spectators, journalists, and his parents, all watching him. Dr. Gofo said a prayer. And then it began. Well, we, we go to the panel meeting and, um, you know, God was with me. I, I presented I, I, I gave a, a flawless presentation. Everything I wanted to do, I pulled off. It was clear, it was crisp. Panel members had maybe two or three questions. I handled them the way I should, and uh, I was really happy with myself. Dr. Golfo's prayer was answered, and his months of insane preparation had paid off. But now, it was the prosecution's turn. So then the FDA person gets up to, to present. And on slide three of his presentation, his boss had to interrupt and say, excuse me, panel, um, that number 37% really should be 45%. Okay, fine. A few other slides later, some other thing, some bulleted point about something, the boss interrupts the presenter, the FDA presenter says, excuse me, panel, um, we met on that, no, what really should say there is, but they put up, okay, fine. Twice now, the FDA had misrepresented facts to the panel. For whatever reason, the FDA 
in charge of promoting and protecting our health couldn't get their presentation straight. But they weren't done yet. And then the third time, you know, a few slides later, again, this is in front of 500 people. Panel, you know, the, 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 the intensity in the room, the tension, okay? Third time, third time, the boss interrupts the presenter and says, well, I'm sorry to say, this is clearly a prior version of the slides. This slide shouldn't even be in the deck. So please ignore it. As if the FDA's prosecution wasn't shocking enough, Dr. Gulfo couldn't believe what happened next. So the, the panel chair says, will Dr. Gulfo come to the microphone? So there's two podiums there's, with the microphone, right? There's the fence podium, right? The company podium and the prosecution or FDA podium. So I go up to my podium and I don't know what's coming next. I, at all the panel meetings I ever went to, this never happened. So I, I'm, I'm nervous. And so the panel chair says, Dr. Gulfo, not that podium. So I walk around to the FDA podium and I get there again, you know, like, like, like a deer in the headlights. I'm just looking at, at the panel chair, uh, Barbara Dutcher was her name. And I'm looking at Dr. Dutcher and she looks at me, she says, Dr. Gulfo, we would like you to present FDA slides. So now I'm asked, I'm asked to present the case against the company, because that's really what it is, the prosecution. This was the first time anyone's ever heard of this happening at the FDA, being asked to testify against yourself because the FDA is unable to do the job. When Dr. Golfo finished, again, the panel adjourned for lunch. So at lunchtime, the head FDA reviewer comes up to me, and again, I'm being, I'm, I'm being mauled. I got, I got people I don't even know of telling me how phenomenal this was. I got... I got investors, potential investors. I got VCs who are in the room who are current investors. I got bankers. I got lawyers. I'm just being inundated. I got to go to the bathroom yet, too, because I got <laughs> to present more. But anyway, so I get a tap on my shoulder, and it's the head FDA reviewer. And he says, Joe, you have a minute? I said, do I have a minute? I said, you're God. Okay, you're the FDA. Do I have a minute? Of course I have a minute. So, yeah, let's go. So we go over to the side, and he says, um... He said, I got three things to tell you. He said, number one, that was a phenomenal presentation. Thank you. Number two, you're an honest guy. He says, you presented your bad equally to your good. He says, and we really like that. He says, and number three, he, he motioned me to get closer, whispers in my ear. You got it in the bag. The head judge and jury foreman basically told him that the afternoon session where the panel members would deliberate over the drug would be a formality. He was practically guaranteed approval. But there was a problem. The way an FDA's panel deliberation works isn't exactly the same as a real court trial. The problem is no one can say a word. Only FDA can say a word. The, 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 prosecu the, the defense can't say a word. So you're going to listen to their jury deliberations as they talk about X, Y, or Z. Then there's going to be a vote. So it, it's, it's, it's a trial. But it's, you know, it's, 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 it's a trial in Russia, okay? This is, this, is not a, uh, this, is not, this is not American justice. After the break, you'll hear what the FDA's final verdict was. Would Valstar get to save lives of folks with bladder cancer? Or would it go into the trash? The final chapter of this amazing story. Next, this is Our American Stories, The Birth of a Drug. You're hearing the voice of Dr. Joseph Golfo, then COO 
of Anthra Pharmaceuticals. This is Our American Stories, and we're back with our final segment of the incredible true story of the life of the bladder cancer drug Valstar and the doctor-turned-entrepreneur, Joseph Golfo, who is fighting for Valstar's life. As we pick up, we're waiting with Dr. Golfo for the FDA to render their final verdict on this drug, and we're about to learn that regulators in Washington don't always make the right call. And the wrong call can have devastating effects on everyone. The panel meeting is called back to the courtroom for the final session. And then this. I can't say a word. The jury, the panel members who don't treat the disease, start talking about the product. And at one point, one of these individuals slapped the table And he says, I don't care how good these data are. Complete response, again, which means totally eradicating the disease. Complete response is the completely wrong endpoint for this disease. And I can't say a word. But complete response, total reversal of the disease, was the very endpoint that the FDA had agreed to for Valstar, regardless of whatever this doctor thought. And remember, the FDA had refused to schedule this panel meeting so urologists could attend. Urologists who actually treat the bladder and who would actually use the drug. But instead, the FDA invited this doctor, an oncologist, who didn't treat this kind of cancer and who wouldn't use this drug. And he believed it didn't matter if this drug is effective. And it didn't matter if this drug means that folks won't have to get their bladders removed. And that patients won't have to spend their life peeing into a bag. He had a different set of beliefs about how cancer treatments should be considered. He was saying that it doesn't matter if you completely eradicate the disease. What matters is, did the patient live longer, in his view? Now, that's not right. In, in bladder cancer, if you eradicate the disease and you stave off cystectomy, that's the gold standard. That's what you want. So, you know, he's an oncologist and he was talking about other diseases. And by the way, I don't even agree when it comes to other diseases, but this was a position that he wanted to advance. And beliefs, even bad ones, have real world effects. So it was, it was the Johnny Cochran moment. When you have someone who speaks with authority and is a bit domineering and projects great personal authority, the others are lemmings. The others just follow. So what happened was 
They took the vote. 11 to 0, unanimous no. 11 to 0. Dr. Golfo went from having in the bag to, with his one comment, losing it all. He was blown away and humiliated in front of his peers, co-workers, and maybe worst of all, his parents, who had come to watch him save lives and instead watched his career crash and burn before their very eyes. So Dr. Golfo does what any man would have done. He confronted the doctor that sabotaged the trial. I said, I said, what are you doing? And he said, well, you know, I, I wanted to make a very, very important point about the way, about the, way the Oncology Drug Advisory Committee really should look at um, cancer. I said, and you picked my meeting to make that point? Yes, this doctor chose the trial of a new drug to make a general policy point about the FDA. And worse, a very controversial policy point. But none of that mattered anymore. What was done was done. And now it was Dr. Golfo's time to get confronted. My parents come up to me and my father says to me, let me buy you a drink. And I said, I can't, I gotta get to the airport. I, can't, I, I gotta get to the airport. And uh, he said to me, I remember him getting very angry at me. He said, after what I just watched, where do you, could you possibly need to be? Dr. Golfo's response to his dad wasn't what he wanted to hear, but he had to say it. Just because he was a company executive didn't mean that he got to take a day off after a devastating personal and professional crisis. To Dr. Golfo, being a company executive meant doing what had to be done. I have a company full of people on the West Coast waiting to have a pre-launch meeting, waiting for me, waiting for me to tell them all that happened here. And what happened here isn't good. I have to get out there and I gotta, I gotta lead. I gotta go out there and lead. TV news never shows this next part of the lives of executives. Their raw humanity. But Dr. Golfo remembers this part, maybe more clearly and vividly than anything else. And I cried. I cried from Dulles to uh, whatever the name of the airport in San Diego is the whole time. I, uh, uh, I was just, I was, I, I can't explain what I was. I, I got to my hotel. Uh, my hotel was on like the 13th or 14th floor and, and there were there was sliding doors and there were rails up, like four foot high rails. I just remember grabbing that rail and looking over the edge and like just saying to myself, it's a good thing there's rails here. Um, just, just, just a horrible, horrible feeling. The hotel was where the Urology Association was hosting its meeting, and they were all the people who couldn't come to the trial. Dr. Golfo ran into a few of the urologists in the hall who had been helping him with the drug and told them what had happened. He was livid, and I told him what happened. He said, but so-and-so doesn't even treat this disease. He got angry. I told the second one, same reaction. Told the third one, same reaction. And then, instead of dwelling, he started doing. And the plan was this. These guys are surgeons. Urologists are surgeons. The last thing a surgeon wants is an internist telling them how to treat things, okay? So what just happened? You had an internist, an oncologist, butting his nose in a surgical disease, superficial bladder cancer. So what I did was I was able to get 12 of the country's top urologic surgeons to go with me to the FDA. 
And again, Dr. Golfo had found his perfect number, 12. Dr. Golfo and his 12 urologists went to the FDA to meet with a senior administrator for what's called a supervisory review request to explain that it was wrong for oncologists to pass judgment on the disease treated by urologists, especially when the FDA prevented the urologists from even attending. The administrator agreed. And he sent Dr. Golfo and Anthra back to the very next panel meeting to restate their case for Valstar, something which was also brand spanking new in the history of the FDA. On September 1st, 1998, and without any new evidence, Valstar got a vote of 10 to 1, this time in favor. But it would turn out to be three months too late. By now, they'd become a pariah in the industry. What happened was the window of opportunity to raise money closed. So even though we got the approval, a nuclear winter emerged, I'm sorry, descended upon the public markets to raise money. So we were not able to raise money. So now the company with a product approved, okay, so we have a product approval and no money, what do we do? And, you know, there was a debate uh, at the board level, what should be done? And um, so uh, so the company basically fragmented and um, I left the company, I went on to something else. And then uh, the drug languished really. It would take more than three years for Valstar to get bought by another company and get into the hands of doctors and onto the bladders of patients. More than 14 years in all for Valstar. Those three lost years were vital for patients and Anthra. Tens of thousands of lives could have been saved. But because of the FDA's carelessness, after years of Anthra's carefulness, they weren't. Anthra itself died, taking with it 25 to $30 million in investments. Money that should have been turned into more money and allowed for reinvestment into more life-saving drugs. Dr. Mervin Israel had two other drugs he wanted to create and test, which would now be postponed for years as a result of Anthra's collapse. And the careers of nearly 30 people fell to pieces, despite the beautiful creation they had all forged. Dr. Golfo may have been the luckiest survivor of the Anthra debacle, as he became known as the man who would get things through the FDA. Dr. Golfo doesn't think it should be that way, though. Innovation shouldn't come down to one man. And it drives Dr. Golfo crazy. It's terrible. Well, it should come down to does the product work. It should not come down to whether the process works. That it's not coming down to the product. It's coming down to many other things. What if you had someone who, who didn't prepare like as, as I did? It shouldn't depend on me. It should depend on the product. And it's getting down to where innovation is becoming a chance occurrence when it should be a rote occurrence. Dr. Golfo, though, would soon go back to the FDA and shepherd another company through the approval process, a story he would write a book about called Innovation Breakdown, How the FDA and Wall Street Cripple Medical Advances. That story will bring you next. Reporting for Our American Stories, I'm John Woods. Wow. Great job, John. The whole team, just superb work. 
And by the way, Dr. Golfo is now the executive director of the Lewis Center for Healthcare at my alma mater, Fairleigh Dickinson University, where I did my undergraduate work. And there he shares his experiences in the medical industry. This is Our American Stories. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Get this story. Get the link. Send it to friends.